0: My first parenthood lesson this morning, we start new ABSs, that, that, was, a, that was a shameless plug for my class. Um, but the first parenthood lesson starts with this story. It opens up with the story of two young fish. They are swimming along and they pass an older fish swimming the other direction. He nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and eventually one of them looks over at the other and says... What's water? True story. <laughs> right? Because fish talk. Um, but the point of it, even in, as we understand parenthood, and the point of it even as we get into the sixth letter to a church this morning, is that sometimes the most obvious and important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and to communicate with each other. So understand where we swim. We swim in a post-post-modern hostile secular world and it can taint us it can contaminate us and the church is no exception matter of fact some of the letters that Jesus already sent to these churches like the church at Thyatira they had accommodated with the world and the Lord stands up and he sort of intersects this matter of fact they weren't just accommodating with the world they had an advocate inside the church And they weren't just accommodating with mild worldly values, though that would be a danger and a threat too. They were accommodating with things like idolatry and immorality and adultery. And so as we, if you would, swim in this world, we're really faced with a question this morning. And the message to the Church of Philadelphia will help us answer this. But is it possible to be a church that pleases God? Is it possible to be a church like it was in first century Asia? Is it possible to be a church in a hostile environment and still please God? The messages to these seven churches reveal that Christ's church has his attention. Do you know what we do this morning is very important? And, Michael, thank you for giving me 60 minutes to preach this morning, but I won't take that. <laughs> um Not just the preaching, our gathering. We've already started sharing life together. We're singing vertically and horizontally to one another. We're encouraging one another. We gather on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, to remind one another and provoke one another to remember that Jesus Christ is risen. Therefore, this week has a purpose. We have a purpose and we have hope this week. So when the church gathers, what these these messages to these churches prove is that Christ's church has his attention. He walks among them. He knows them. I mean, how often have we heard in these messages, I know your works. I know you. You know, he knows us. Every pew, every person in every pew. He knows us individually, but he also knows us, if you would, corporately. He cares for the church, you know, and He cares about what they do, and He guides them. That's really our purpose in this life, is to please Him, to please God. Not, not with eyes towards one another, not, not with, a, with an agenda to please everybody else outside looking in and critiquing us or affirming us. Neither of those should really distract us. The applause or the condemnation If we have made a decision to please God first and in everything. The encouragement here, and I would like to think that that Highlands is like this church in Philadelphia. The encouragement is it is possible to be a church that pleases God and receives his words of affirmation. And the question that that leaves us with is this. What would a church that pleases Christ look like? So take out your imaginary piece of paper, sort of a mental piece of paper. What two things would you put if you were to just start creating a list? Here are two things that a church that pleases Christ would do. Or this is what a church that pleases Christ would look like. Just fill that in real quick. And what would become apparent, I think, if we gathered all those, those ideas and put them and compiled a list is that what we think would please Christ, sometimes it's influenced by what pleases us. And then what actually pleases Christ is very simple and clear. Every ministry, every church makes a choice to please someone. Wouldn't you agree with that? Every ministry, every church operates under this sort of point Who are we here to please? And whether we are effective or not, and whether we please God or not, depends on who we are making decisions for. So some ministries will make decisions based upon the leadership. The leaders get what they want. Or upon the membership, or upon the oldest membership, or upon the wealthiest, or upon the newest, or upon the target audience. Or decisions are made by outsiders looking in or decisions are basically made on the community, so we become a sort of a seeker-sensitive church. We're simply here to please the world that lives in the neighborhoods around us. But before there can be any philosophy of ministry or target audience of a church that pleases Christ, there must be an unwavering commitment to please God first. And folks, what that means, not in every case, but there are a few exceptions is that we will, like the church of Philadelphia, become an offense to the world. We will become an object of persecution when we graciously and lovingly stand in the way of the world's value system that either eclipses or denies God. When we stand up and guide our children in a specific way that moves them away from being completely inundated and immersed with an anti-God secular agenda. That kind of church, though, will please Christ. The church in Philadelphia receives a message from the Lord Jesus, and in it, like the church in Smyrna, and this this should be the first encouraging thing, both in Philadelphia and in the church in Smyrna, there are no warnings to this church. I mean, if you were here for the the preaching of the, the, the message at Thyatira or Sardis, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Philadelphia, there's no such warnings. There's no rebuke. There are no judgments. There are no threats. This letter to this church is free of any criticism. And so that, first of all, this morning should be very encouraging, that it is possible to live in this world and be immersed in this ocean and yet please Christ as a church. The letter to the church in Philadelphia reveals that a seeming insignificant church can have Christ's approval. So let's look at this. This is the sixth message to a local church that provides clarity as to what Christ desires for his church in the world. Here it is, chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. And again, we've been vague in identifying who the angel is. Was it the teaching, the lead teacher, or was it a representative from that church that met with John on the island of Patmos? Did they gather and then the human messengers take that back? Perhaps. We're not told. It could be an angel. Neither of those is out of the realm of the way God has worked in the past. What we do know is this is a specific message for this church that then has worldwide application for Christ's church. The churches in Philadelphia and Smyrna are the only two with no rebuke. And here's what's important about that. Both churches were under severe threat from unbelieving Jews in the city. Probably one of the, one of the things that maybe as Michael was reading God's word to us this morning that stands out, one of, the, one of the shocks or surprises was this is the second time Jesus refers to the Jews as what? A synagogue of folks that sounds harsh and it is supposed to be there is no there's sort of no wiggle room in that description so and 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 the other thing is that these unbelieving Jews who now are a gathering of satanic influence had had probably like they have done in the rest of the Jewish world kicked these followers of Jesus out of the synagogue now notice notice the imagery they pushed them out of the doors They shut the doors to them. And Jesus is going to use words like this. I have opened up a door for you that no one can shut. Isn't that encouraging? So if we as a church ever find ourselves meeting under a tree or meeting in smaller groups throughout the city because persecution against Christ followers has hit severely and these doors are shut or our facilities are taken away, we are still Christ's church. And the door remains open. Both were under severe threat from unbelieving Jews in the city. And they said, those Jews said what most Jews still say today. They say Jesus is not the true Messiah sent from God. So when they observe Passover, even today, they keep a table setting open because they're expecting somebody to knock at that door. And it's supposed to be Elijah saying Messiah has arrived. So to this day, they still set up that empty table plate, and every time they do, they are saying Jesus is not the Messiah. He is not the true one sent from God. So it's interesting. Look at verse 7, the latter part of verse 7, on the names now that are used for Jesus. They reflect the situation they are in. The words of the Holy One, the true one, And and listen to these sort of Hebrew Old Testament descriptions. Who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one opens. This is actually the first description of Christ that is not found in the opening vision in chapter 1. And because it meets their situation specifically. So the Jews are saying what? The synagogue of Satan is saying, false Messiah. if If you are a follower of Jesus then you can't gather in the synagogue. Or they're going to face persecution if they're gathering somewhere else. And so the names of Christ, when he comes to this church, this hurting church, he says the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one opens. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's telling these weak, discouraged followers... That the true Messiah is on their side, not on the side of the synagogue of Satan. Look at these titles. The Holy One, the True One. Christ is God. He is set apart, distinct, unique. He is the genuine Messiah. Turn over to chapter 6, verse 10. You're going to see these two ideas combined again there in reference to God. So this is a description of deity. Revelation 6, verse 10, they, the martyrs of verse 9, if you want to put it into context, here are these martyrs who are crying out. By the way, just because you follow Christ doesn't mean you will be saved from martyrdom. These martyrs are crying out. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord. Now look at the description. Holy and true How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Go back to chapter 3. Christ is God, the unique, genuine Messiah, the Son of God, the faithful one who will avenge and vindicate his followers. Do you know that the demons believe that? If you think about that for a moment, when Jesus was walking on the earth and the demons confronted Jesus, they said this. "Listen Listen to the testimony of a demon. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Even the demons make a right profession on that occasion. Christ is the true one. He's authentic and genuine. He is the true Messiah, unlike what the Jews, the synagogue of Satan, are saying about him. He's not... The false Messiah, as the Jews suppose. But he's also the way. Christ is God, but Christ is also the way. He says, Who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This is taken from Isaiah 22, verse 22. In that portion of scripture, the Lord demands that Eliakim replace Shebna as the household steward, and he's given keys. He's given access to the house. He's given authority to this house. Let me read that portion out of Isaiah. The key of the house of David, he shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. In this way, Eliakim becomes a type of Christ with authority who controls the entrance to the kingdom. Can I just make this statement very clear? Jesus... Holds the keys. Revelation 118, if you just go back two chapters, it says this, that Jesus is the living one. He says this, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. That's sovereign power. That is fearful power. Do you know there is no way to the Father except through the one who holds the keys. That's what he says in John fourteen six. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. Sovereign control of the front door. He is the one who grants access. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Christ holds the keys. But he's also delegated that authority to his apostles. We won't go there, but Matthew sixteen, eighteen to nineteen is when is when Jesus looks over at Peter and he says, You know, upon this rock I will build my church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So when I say it's very important what we do here this morning, that Jesus Christ holds the keys to Hades and to hell, and in this church, even in a church like overlooked and insignificant and weak like the Church of Philadelphia, the gates of hell can't even prevail against the Church of Philadelphia. Why? Because Christ is Lord. Christ is their Lord. Christ is the head, the sovereign one of the church. He's the leader. In so many ways, we have wrongly evaluated Christ's church. In some ways, I think we fall prey to the fact that we have to dress it up or make it more interesting or appear more powerful or successful when in fact, in essence, because Christ is the head of the church, it is beautiful. And it is powerful. And it is God's idea. And many of us have reacted against a poor picture of a church. And that's, that doesn't come as a surprise to Jesus. Jesus. The Corinthian church was not a good reflection of Jesus Christ, her head. The church at Thyatira was not a good reflection of Jesus Christ, her head. So we need to get to the place where we're not simply reacting against sinful Christians. But we're actually faithfully following Christ in simplicity. Again, the Jews had probably excommunicated Christians out of the synagogue as they had done throughout the Jewish world. And, they, and in doing so, they did not represent Jesus Christ. So here comes that term. They are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus used this term before, John eight forty four, when he says, you are of your father the devil. He's talking to Jewish people. You are of your father the devil and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and he did not abide in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks out of his own nature because he is the father of lies. The Jews who profess to be the true children of God, Jesus now comes and says, No, you're of your father, the devil. You are a synagogue of Satan. And the church can become like the synagogue, formal, empty, Christless, like Sardis. Or perhaps like Thyatira. Christ's decision is final. Christ alone can open, and Christ alone can shut. And that decision cannot be altered or undone. So let me ask you this morning are you in Christ? Have you experienced the open door of His grace? Or have you tried to cleverly design another way, which there is not, and those doors remain shut? Because it's unalterable. There are no engineers creating and designing a new way to get to God on humanistic terms or on mere formality terms. It's not even good enough to simply be a A radical Jew who attends the synagogue regularly. There can't be a perfect church, but there can be a true church. So look at verse 8. Jesus says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Okay, the Jews may shut their doors to them. The Jews may remove privileges. The Jews may remove advancement in society. They might come along and take their belongings. But do you know what? Jesus has set before them an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So we started by asking a question. What does a church look like that pleases Christ? It keeps his word, and it does not deny his name. There are some really rich truths in those words. God knows their works. And I believe there was enough pressure in that area of Philadelphia for the Jews or for the believers to sort of accommodate to the Jews' pressure and deny Jesus Christ. And when Jesus walks amidst them, he says, I know your works. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. He also knows they have a little power, perhaps little influence in the community, or perhaps... Not lack of faith or obedience, but insignificance. Every small church, struggling church who is faithful, should find encouragement in these words. I mean, isn't that what we'd love to hear as his church? Highlands, I know your works. You have kept my word. You have not denied my name. And in 20 years, if the Lord tarries and we're still alive, he can come along and he can walk amidst this lampstand and he can say, I know your works. You've kept my word. You have not denied my name. From the outside looking in, they were nothing, but from God's view, they were faithful. Godly choices are rarely convenient or comfortable. But now look at the rewards. Look at verse 9. Here's the vindication aspect. Christ is not neutral to our opposition. Sometimes God seems far away and distant, and evil seems to triumph, and manipulative people seem to get their way. God is not passive to those things. He knows those works too. Look at what he says. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn and just... Look at this phrase, that I have loved you. The Jews say there's no way that God could possibly love the Gentiles. And yet God is the one that removed that wall of division. And God loves those who are not by nature Jews. Listen to Romans chapter 2. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. See, the false professors, the deniers, will realize that truth one day. They will bow down and say, God has loved these people. Jesus, or Jews, bowing to the Gentiles. What picture does that present? I mean, when it was read, and then when you just heard it again. What is that picture? It sounds like a humble and defeated enemy. That's the picture. It sounds like somebody who was tenaciously opposed to the truth, and they have to come and admit they were wrong. That's the picture of Isaiah 45:14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. It's a similar picture. Isaiah 49:23, kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens, your nursing mothers with their faces to the ground. They shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. When we understand who Jesus Christ is, we must not confuse humility with weakness or long-suffering with inability. Christ is king, and he is a divine warrior, and he has expectations. And what a fearful picture when he walks amidst this church, and he says, I'm pleased with you. Look at the protection he offers. Because you have, verse 10, because you have kept my word, There's that idea again of a church that pleases Christ, keeps his word and does not deny his name because you have kept my word. And now they're keeping Christ's word about something very specific. You have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Again, we we, were returning to that a church that pleases Christ keeps his word. Listen to Jesus words. If you love me, you will what? Right? We know that. You will keep my commandments. Oh, that's just legalism. No, that's obedience. Legalism is trying to obey all of God's laws to merit his favor for salvation. Matter of fact, Ephesians 2, and it spells out very clearly that you are saved by grace, not by works. We love verses 8 and 9, but in verse 10, he says, you have been saved for good works. He says this again. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So a church that pleases Christ. If Highlands is pleasing Christ, we are obeying His words. We love Him and that love fuels obedience for Him. It's not just a duty. It's a delight to obey Him because of the gospel of His grace. In light of their faithfulness to Christ, they are given this promise, the expression, I will keep you from the hour of trial. And that that naturally piques our interest because I haven't talked to anybody here at Highlands that, that really is eagerly looking for persecution, right? You know, this week I just hope more tribulation falls on my plate, right? We don't think like that. And it's, it would be unnatural to. But when it comes, are you safe? Are you kept from? See, that expression, keep from, appears only here in Revelation, but it does occur in one other New Testament instance. And it's Jesus' high priestly prayer. And there the phrase is clearly understood. Let me read to you the verse, John 17, verse 15. Here Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from, same phrase, the evil one. See, a lot of us have been taught that our greatest hope is that we're going to somehow be removed from any tribulation. That may or may not be the case. But in his prayer, he's praying that we would be kept from the world. A similar idea is communicated by John, who wrote Revelation is communicated by him in 1 John 5 when he says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. It doesn't mean we do not sin, but it means if you're truly born of God, there is a conviction and a turning, a lifestyle of repentance and faith, a turning back and obedience. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So it seems in this message: Christ offers protection in rather than out of the trials. But it is something that the whole world is going to face. Craig Keener states this in his commentary. He says quote, "No description of Jesus' return precedes Revelation 19: 11 to 16, And no clear mention of any corporate resurrection precedes the first resurrection in Revelation 20 verses four to six. Although saints are slaughtered throughout Revelation, they are also protected from God's anger in Revelation 7, an activity that would fulfill the promise of 310 to Philadelphia and Christians like them. Could it be we are kept from the great tribulation that Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and John here in Revelation mentioned? Possibly. I will keep you. Here's the encouragement. Here's God's promise. God will keep us somehow from it or through it. Either way, God is protecting his church from something the world is not kept from. Was Noah kept from the dangers of the flood? Yes. Did God have to remove him out of the world to do so? No. See, so we don't fully understand the plan of God in his protection. But here's the promise. God is protecting his church from something the world will not be kept from. So there's an encouragement and a warning there. Now here's the exhortation. Look at verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. This is the fourth time that Christ's return is used as an incentive to, to the church at Ephesus he's returning to shut them down. Remember that? To the church at Pergamum, he's coming to judge them with the sword of his mouth. To Sardis, it is a sudden and unexpected judgment like a thief. But here in Philadelphia, it's it's a positive incentive. I am coming to vindicate and to bring reward. Then he says this, what you have, hold what you have, and then the open door that no one can shut is... Their citizenship in heaven. Because you're secure. Because your citizenship is in heaven. Because you are children of the heavenly Father. Persevere in trial. But then note this phrase. Because everything was going so smooth. And then there's this phrase. So that no one may seize your crown. Okay, wait a minute. Well done. I'm pleased with you. I know your works. You're keeping my word. You're not denying my name. You have a little strength persevere but don't let anybody seize your crown this is not loss of citizenship but loss of reward the church of philadelphia still had to persevere even though they received Christ well done at that point in history they still had to keep keeping on and there are satanic Demonic influences. Human opposition like the synagogue of Satan trying to get believers to quit. To get them to be disqualified. Most young men know about the training for Navy SEALs and they go into this kind of third week in phase one that is called Hell Week. And to get out of it, all you have to do is ring a bell. Three times. And you can... Put your little helmet down and you can go in and I've heard that they'll give you coffee and a donut. And if you're sandy and wet and cold, that sounds very good. So in those kinds of terms, you have a whole spiritual world and human opponents that are trying to get you to ring the bell. Don't let them seize your crown. In jujitsu, we call it tapping out. So you're maneuvering, you're putting holds on the other guy, you're trying to do leg sweeps, and you finally want to get them to the point, whether it's through an arm bar or some other painful hold, what you want to hear is, and it's usually wherever they can reach on your, that's what you feel, and you immediately release. But they lost. They can breathe again, they can stand up and fight again, but they lost. We must, by faith, in grace, in grace, Endure and finish. Look at the promise. Look at verse 12 as we move to the close. The one who conquers. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Here are the promises of God. Listen to the one who conquers, to the one who perseveres by faith. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. We are told that in AD 17, a powerful earthquake came through and destroyed Sardis and Philadelphia and about 12 other cities. Absolutely flattened them. When Jesus comes and offers this promise, here's what they're thinking. This is a support column. Stability. Permanence. They seem weak. But from an accurate perspective, divine perspective, they are strong and they become a support to other people. The second promise is not just that of being a pillar in the temple of my God. Strong stability and support that can never be taken away. But the promise of a new name, it's a threefold name. Quickly, look at this. The name of my God. Relationship. To be of his essence, his child. To receive the inheritance of a wealthy and a good father. To enjoy that, yes, citizenship in the new city, but to enjoy that with a loving, caring, heavenly father. I will write on him the name of my God. And I will write on him the name of the city from that time on. This comes from Ezekiel chapter 40. Let me read Ezekiel 48:35, And the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. Now, if you're taking notes... Two New Testament passages will help illuminate this idea of the new Jerusalem. Galatians 4, 26 to 27. Let me just read you a portion of that. But the Jerusalem above is free. Isn't that a beautiful description? And then Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels. In both of these passages, the heavenly city that comes down is contrasted with the temporal earthly city. In this temporal world, you can be kicked out. But up there, the door remains open and no one can shut it. And you have an eternal citizenship. And then probably the most mysterious name is when Jesus says, and my own new name. Now, it's uncertain what that is. The apostle Paul in Philippians gives sort of a reference to it. Perhaps therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father and that new name, whatever it is, indicates priceless possession Again, sovereignty, ownership. And then, like in all the letters, look at verse 13. He who has an ear to hear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what does that have to do with Highlands? This morning. To the weak, discouraged, depressed, depressed, afflicted, doubting, and fearful, to the followers of Christ who seem overlooked and insignificant, who receive no applause, who receive no headlines, who are overlooked, Jesus says... I know your works. So, as his church, we press on. We may never be impressive to the world, but that doesn't matter because Jesus knows us. Do we keep his word? Do, do we not deny his name? If you love me, keep my commandments. There's also this keep fighting, resisting. Persevering, because the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. The gospel gives hope and is truth, and therefore we have permanence, security, and a guarantee of safety. First Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 37 to 39. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, our persevering, our conquering is a life of faith in Christ. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in those two truths, we persevere, we conquer. And then remember your true identity. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God. So relationship, citizenship, and I will write on him my own new name, possession. Let's pray.